Well, once again, I want to wish everyone a happy uh, Resurrection Sunday. And uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Now, once you get to John 16, just kind of put your finger there for a minute and look up here. I want to begin this morning by reading you something. It goes like this. Every year people climb a mountain in the Italian Alps to stand at an outside crucifix. There they remember that the Lord Jesus died. A tourist noticed that a little trail led off from the shrine of the cross. He made his way down the trail and to his surprise he found another shrine overgrown with brush. This shrine symbolized the empty tomb. Unfortunately, it had been neglected. Reflecting on the experience, the tourist said it reminded him of many Christians who stop at the cross and never proceed to the empty tomb, end quote. Now, I think that this writer, whether he realized it or not, has put his finger, I think, on the greatest problem facing the church in America today. And that is too many Christians living on the wrong side of the resurrection. And by that I mean they really believe in the resurrection. I'm not saying they don't, but they have never been able from a practical standpoint to move into the fullness of all that that life represents. They're kind of like the children of Israel trapped in the wilderness. They believed in the promised land. They just didn't have enough faith to enter into it. And the difference between living on the wrong side or the right side of the resurrection is really the difference between the disciples before and after Jesus rose from the dead. That brings us to John 16. I want to read the verses 19 and 20. Now Jesus had just got done saying earlier he was going away and where they where he was going they could not follow him at that time. Of course their hearts were troubled. He revisits that topic because he knows they're troubled about it and says in verse 19, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Notice that Jesus said before he rose from the dead, the disciples would have sorrow, weeping and lamenting. But after his resurrection, Jesus said they would have joy. In fact, he said it was a joy no one would be able to take from them, a lasting joy. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what side of the resurrection are you living on? What side of the resurrection are you living on? You might be thinking, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, you know, what? I don't know. I mean, how, how can I know what side I'm living on? Well, what qualities in general characterize your life? Is it joy? excitement and enthusiasm for the things of God or is your Christian life characterized in general by sadness and emptiness weariness and pessimism what changed the disciples from sorrow to joy well it was seeing the risen Christ right he says that in verse 20 he says most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now listen, I know that he's saying that, you know, in a very little while, in fact, a few hours, he was going to be crucified and taken away from them. 
And they were going to be plunged into deep sorrow and depression because the one they had put their hope in, the one that they believed was Messiah, the one that they believed was going to bring a new day for Israel, was going to bring the kingdom, a kingdom of hope and joy and so on. Well, now that he's dead, all their hopes and dreams were crushed. Of course, three days later, as they were mourning those three days, when he stepped from the tomb alive and appeared to them, their sorrow was turned into great joy. So I get that. I understand what he's saying. But the point I'm making is many of us Christians live that way. We live as if Jesus Christ is still, de is still dead and buried instead of alive and living in our hearts. And I say that because so many Christians are at a place where there's nothing but sorrow, emptiness, where they had great hopes that their Christianity would bring some kind of fulfillment and joy and hope into their life. But as they stand right now today, they have to admit that what characterizes their life mostly are feelings that God maybe has left them or abandoned them. That, you know, whatever hope they had for a, a bright future has been dashed because of some event or, or tragedy or something. They're not living as if Jesus Christ is alive. They believe he rose from the dead, but they're just not living like it. Um, again, the idea is that we evangelicals, as somebody has said, are conservative in our theology, but we're practical atheists. What do you mean? Well, we believe all the right things that the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. We do believe he has risen from the dead, but we don't live our lives as though he's risen from the dead. We don't live our lives with the hope that, you know, because he's alive and lives in our hearts, and that he will take care of us and guide us and, 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 and will bring into our lives or bring us in the right path that will lead us to places of, of usefulness and effectiveness and, yes, fill us constantly with his joy. We don't really believe that. We, we have not really seen the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. And that's very important. Do you really believe that Jesus has risen? I mean, everyone in this room would probably say yes. Yet why is it that we don't live as if he has risen? Why don't we live the resurrection life? That's the whole idea. Why are we living the resurrection life? Resurrection life, as you all know, is life in the spirit. It is drawing its life directly from the life of God. It's being connected to God. You might say like a baby is connected to its mother in the womb. The baby draws its life, its nourishment, its strength from its mother. The same is true with the resurrection life. It's a life that's being drawn from the Holy Spirit moment by moment and day by day. And the umbilical cord that connects us to God is our faith. But not just a dead, uh, passive faith, a living, active faith. What do I mean? I mean, where you wake up in the morning and you really believe God is with you. God is going to guide you. He's going to direct you. If you call to him, he will answer. That God is going to provide because he's promised to. It's that living faith based on what God has promised that gets you up in the morning, keeps you going throughout your day, and what you cling to when maybe things don't work out the way you would like them to work out. But God's still on the throne. He's still sovereign. I believe that. And if God isn't going to let me go in this direction, maybe he's got a detour that is his perfect will, and I'm willing to, to go wherever he leads. That's an act of faith, isn't it? It's a moment-by-moment -moment thing. You see, resurrection life 
has a spiritual dimension to it, but it also has a practical dimension to it as well. In other words, it has eternal implications, but it also has practical implications. Yes, I understand, as Paul said in Ephesians, we as Christians are in Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places. We understand that. But we also know we are still living on this earth. And God has got plans for us as we are living here on this earth. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And when he said that, he was really talking about the resurrection life that we are to live out here on this earth. Now listen to me. Resurrection life, life that is abundant and full of glory, uh, that's a kind of life that has purpose to it. You cannot have the kind of life that's life in the spirit, the resurrection life, if you are not living your life for an eternal purpose. So when Jesus said this, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, he was not just talking about uh, what's going on inside of us, but how the Spirit will work through us. He said, you're not going to have a kind of life that is meaningful, satisfying, powerful, and fruitful if you're not living your life for an eternal purpose. We all have purpose. I mean, every one of us has a job to do. We, we, you know, we have to earn money to pay our bills. And we all have purpose, but that's not necessarily eternal purpose. If we're going to live on the right side of the resurrection, which is to live the resurrection life, then we need to understand what Jesus commanded us to do as our main purpose in this life as his followers. And to do this, I want to focus primarily on what Jesus Christ said after his resurrection. Uh, because after his resurrection, he spent 40 more days with his disciples before he ascended back to his father. And during those 40 days, he hammered home every single day what he wanted them to be consumed with, what he wanted them to give their lives to. He, wanted, he hammered home every single day the eternal purpose he was calling them to. And if we take a composite look at all the commandments that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples uh, concerning our mission here in this earth, these are the instructions and the injunctions that Jesus gave to his disciples, including us, directly after his resurrection and prior to his ascension back to his father. Here they are. I have compiled them into a few statements, all right? This is what he is commissioning us to do, to be concerned about and so on. Let me read them to you. He said, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to every person, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You see, the whole purpose of Jesus coming to the earth the whole reason he died and rose again was so that people could be saved. Again, he said it very succinctly, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And now that Jesus has returned to his Father and the Holy Spirit has been poured out, he has given that work over to his church to do to continue in his absence. And this work would be impossible. Going into all the world, are you kidding me? Think about those disciples. 
when Jesus first commissioned them. These were fishermen. These were ordinary guys, blue-collar workers mostly. And he's telling them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Lord, are you serious? You want us to go to Rome, Athens, Alexandria, places of, of high learning, education, and so on? How are we as simple fishermen, simple Galileans, how are we going to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person? Well, you have to understand, he was never calling us to do that great work in our own strength. He was calling us to do it through the resurrection life that he would give to us through his spirit. Look, let me just define quickly. Resurrection life is a life positioned in Christ, living for the purposes of Christ, working in the power of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. Resurrection life is a life positioned in Christ, living for the purposes of Christ, and being done or working in the power of Jesus Christ. Position, purpose, and power are the three requisites for the resurrection life. Let me define them. Position. You need to be saved and abiding in Christ. You need to be saved. That's not where it ends, that's where it begins. And every day after that, you need to abide in Christ, which means stay close to Him. Uh, stay in the Word. Stay in fellowship with Him. Because as you are in fellowship with Him after you are saved, He is able to direct your life more, uh, more fully, uh, more completely. So position. Secondly, purpose. Resurrection life involves purpose. You need to be living your life for one purpose, to do His will and His work. Now I realize, once again, we all have jobs, we all have things that we have to do, but let me say this to you. You have to cultivate a mindset that even when you're on the job, you're a missionary for Christ. I don't care what your job is, okay? I mean, not just professional ministers are the ones who are supposed to do the work of God. We're all called to be servants. Slaves, actually, is the word in the Greek. And as such, every one of us is working for the Lord. He is our king. We are his ambassadors. And we, he has sent us out into the world to represent him. You can do that when you're walking by the way, when you're going to drop the kids off at school, when you maybe talk to some of the other parents who are dropping kids off or at the grocery store or while you're at work or with a neighbor. There is always opportunities to witness for Jesus Christ simply by being a light first and foremost, by living your life uh, the way Christ wants you to live it, and then by speaking on behalf of him, sharing the gospel when the time uh, comes. So position, purpose, and power. Power. You need to be doing his work not in your strength, but in his. And that's such an important uh, concept because too often we think as Christians, it depends on us. I was telling first service that before the service began, one of the guys in our church was talking about how he was helping a couple that he knows uh, because their marriage is not re doing real well. And she's a Christian. He might be, but probably not. And and so, you know, uh, as he was kind of kind of helping them and witnessing to, to, to him and all, and uh, the wife at one point turned to this guy in our church and basically said to him, you know, when the husband was not at the, in the room at that time, said, you know, you know we got to do this. We got to bring him to Jesus. We got to get his life straightened out. See, that's the very thing we're talking about. Whenever you say, I've got to do it, whenever you put it on your shoulders that the work of God can only get done through your strength, you're going to have a very frustrated and fruitless ministry. You must do the work. It's good to have a good heart to do God's work, but you've got to do it the right way. You've got to do it through His power and strength. 
Because only then are we going to reach the lost for Jesus. Now, let me say this. Why aren't we doing a better job? And I'm not speaking to you guys in particular. I'm just talking about the church in America in general, okay? Why aren't we as the church of Jesus Christ in America doing a better job at saving the lost? I mean, this is our mission. This is the main purpose for which Jesus came to the earth. Uh, he has given us that purpose and, and calling. Uh, what What is it? Why aren't we doing a better job in reaching the lost for Christ? Now, you, you might talk to many Christians and say, we're doing a great job. All kinds of people are coming to my church. Yeah, but are they coming to Christ? I mean, you know, today churches have figured out that if you dangle enough little things in front of people, you know, if you bait the hook with enough programs, they come to church and the presentation is, is glamorous enough, glitzy enough, you know. If you've got a world-class professional worship team, you've got the video stuff going everywhere, you've got the lighting working, you know, and, and everything is just clicking and all. You've got this very polished, you know, almost Las Vegas-like feel of a worship service you're presenting. You know, people are going to come because it's entertaining, isn't it? They're going to come to church, but are they really coming to Christ? And I'll tell you this, I don't think so. I think we are not seeing the number of people coming to Christ that are coming to church. Why? Because we're losing the culture. And you may talk to some people who disagree with that, but you tell me if you think, think, think things are getting lighter and lighter in the world or they're getting darker and darker. Just turn on the TV, right? And if you can watch the news at night and not get depressed at how dark and lost this world really is then god bless you because i get depressed you know but let me just say this to you i get depressed when i see how lost people are but i get excited because i realize those are the very times god begins to work when things are so bad and when all of our little programs and gimmicks are not working and we fall on our faces and cry out to god god we need something different yeah we, do, we need the power of his spirit as tozer said one time aw tozer great man of god he said, if you took the Holy Spirit out of the workings of the early church in the first century, 90% of what they were doing would have come to a stop. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the work of the church today, 10% of what's going on would stop. We're not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. And therefore, we are losing the culture. We are losing the culture. And why is that? Well, I just gave you part of it. We're not trusting in God's power, but why is that? Well, I think primarily it's because, again, I'm speaking in general terms now, I think primarily it's because the church in America has stopped focusing on saving the lost as our primary mission as Christians. They would disagree, but I see it differently. I think the church in America, for the most part, has stopped focusing on saving the lost as our primary mission as Christians and has shifted the focus in the church to serving ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, let me illustrate that with a story. Now, if you're regular at Calvary, you've heard me read this before. But it does really dovetail with our message this morning. And uh, so I'd like to read it to you again. It's called a life-saving station. And it goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast, where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area 
wanted to become associated with the station and give up their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club also. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the uh, was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. And some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called the life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all those various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in all those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. <clears throat> as the years went by, the new station experienced <clears throat> the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History com continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Now, the person who wrote that little story, of course, wrote it as an allegory of the church. And how the church started out with a very simple mission. To seek and to save those that were lost. That was our mission because our leader Jesus Christ stated in Luke 19 verse 10 that that was his mission when he came to the earth. And commissioned us to go and do the same. This meant that he had called his church to be a life saving station. And we know as we read the book of Acts as the church was founded. It consisted of mostly poor but extremely dedicated people who were determined to carry out their mission no matter what the cost. And we see that in the book of Acts, how that in the first 30 years of the church's existence, they won, and I say the known world, they won a good majority of the known world to Christ. All because they were sold out and because they knew what their purpose was and didn't let anything distract them from that purpose. But sadly, over time, so many churches have lost sight of that purpose. As God has blessed them, and as they have prospered, they have built large, beautiful buildings with very elegant furniture and decor. I was just watching a program just the other night that had a pastor on from Texas. He's a decent guy, don't get me wrong. 
but he was talking about how they are just about ready to dedicate their new building. They spent $130 million on this church, complete with a fantastic water fountain out front that rivals anything in Vegas. $130 million of God's money. Hey, I don't begrudge a church from having a building. I don't begrudge a church from having a nice building. But isn't that a little extravagant? I mean, how much of that money could have gone into missions? And I know I sound like the super spiritual type that wants to rain everybody's parade. No, I, I don't begrudge churches from having nice facilities. $130 million? I mean, often churches like that contain food courts and coffee shops. And again, I'm not necessarily putting that down. And they have so many amenities that Christians can really stay at church for hours on end. Fellowshipping with other believers. And we all enjoy the fellowshipping, right? The problem is with some of these churches, you never have to leave. You've got everything there. Everything from a great place to eat, have coffee, recreate, fellowship, gymnasiums to, you know, work out and weight rooms and, and, uh, and uh, entertainment opportunities. And good heavens, you can stay in church all week long and never leave there. Just fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company. The tragic result is that more and more Christians see their Christianity as merely a social outlet, a form of entertainment, and not as part of a spiritual rescue team going out into a shipwrecked world seeking and saving the lost. Because of this, more and more Christians are looking to others to do the work of rescuing the lost while they remain in a place of comfort and complacency. The result is that more and more people are dying and going to hell as the church, for the most part, stands by seemingly unconcerned. Now, I'm not saying that, look, don't get me wrong, we want to see people saved as Christians. It's just that we have come to cultivate a mindset that we'll let other people do the work. I'll write my check out, which is not wrong to do. We support missions groups here at Calvary. But if you see the job of reaching the loss is somebody else's responsibility. As long as I write my check out every month, I'm good with God. When Jesus said, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. And again, we see that emblazoned across missions organizations. Go into all the world. And that's what they're doing. They're going to Africa and other places. But he didn't give that command to missions organizations. He gave it to every disciple of Jesus Christ. And the Greek is actually, as you're going into all the world. It's his way of saying, as you leave your home to go out into the world, in whatever capacity, whether you're on your way uh, to the store and you meet people, or you're at work, or, or something, dropping the kids off at school and, and, and talking to some of the other parents, as you're going out into the world, every day of your life is the idea, be a witness. How? By first living your Christian faith, being a light, and then secondly, by verbalizing your faith, sharing the gospel when the opportunity presents itself. We are all missionaries for Christ. We can't write a check and say that's somebody else's responsibility. We are all called to evangelize. No, none of us, not all of us are missionaries. Not all of us are called as evangelists, but we're all called to preach the good news to every person. 
And look, let me just say this to you. Every one of us can pray, right? We, we can't all go to Africa. We can't all go to some other remote part of the world. But we can all pray. We have a week of fasting and prayer next week where we're going to put everything aside and focus fast, humble ourselves before God, come together and pray for our nation, pray for our families, pray for our communities. I think America, there's a lot to be, that needs to be prayed for. We can all do that. And I pray you will come out. God also has given every one of us gifts. Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we are to use the gifts the Holy Spirit has given us that we would all work together to, to, together to accomplish the work he's called us to do as a body. As a body. People today say, well, you know, I, we pay our pastor to do the work of ministry. Actually, Paul said in Ephesians 4, I'm the equipper who equips you through the teaching of the word to do the work of ministry. You're the ministers. I'm the equipper, whatever that means. Okay? But the attitude in America, again, speaking in general terms, seems to be let somebody else do the work. While Christians today just seem content on spending all their time socializing for Jesus. They call it fellowship. But true biblical fellowship is encouraging, encouraging one another in the work of Christ and keeping each other accountable and living for Christ. That's fellowship. Unfortunately, modern Christianity has turned into a spectator sport. You know, Chuck Colson in his book, The Body, says that the church is going through an identity crisis. We have forgotten what we are and what our purpose is. He said, and I quote, <clears throat> The roots of the church's identity crisis are found in the consumer mentality so pervasive in our culture. Ask people what they look for in a church, and the number one response is fellowship. Others answer, other answers range from good sermons, to the music program, to youth activities for the kids, to a church that makes me feel good. People flit around in search of what suits their taste at the moment. It's what some have called the McChurch mentality. Today it might be McDonald's for a Big Mac, tomorrow Wendy's salad bar, or perhaps the wonderful chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A. Thus the church becomes just another retail outlet, faith just another commodity. People change congregations and preachers and even denominations as readily as they change banks or grocery stores. What many are looking for is a spiritual social club, an institution that offers convivial relationships but certainly does not influence how people live or what they believe. Spiritual consumers are interested not in what the church stands for, but in the fulfillment it can deliver, end quote. And I think he put his finger on a big problem in, in the church today. Look, as long as Christians see their personal happiness as the chief goal of life, and the church as one of those ways they can help meet that goal, as long as Christians choose a church the same way they choose a vacation destination, based on all the amenities, all the opportunities for social uh, you know, interaction and so on, and entertainment, as long as their Christian life is more self-centered than Christ-centered, they will continue to miss the real purpose for why Jesus has saved them. You know, without any real eternal purpose for living their Christian life, they are going to drift. 
and many Christians are drifting. It's because they have never been anchored to a church that is teaching them the word and encourage and is staying focused in its mission. Has not gotten sidetracked. Has not followed into the trap of thinking the church exists to make people happy. No, it exists to help them be holy. The church exists because God has created it to fulfill a purpose. That purpose is an eternal purpose. Even as the writer to uh, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Do you realize we're the only creatures on this earth that God has made that can live for eternity? Do you realize that of all the creatures God has made, animals can't live for eternity. There is no eternity for an animal. They live for time. They are creatures of time. And as such, they are consumed with the things that they have need of in this life. Only people made in God's image who receive Christ can defer happiness, fulfillment, their will, set it all aside to pursue Christ, His will, His purposes, because they know in the end, well, there awaits for them an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that will never fade away, which God is reserving in heaven for them right now because they are kept by the power of God through faith. And I'll tell you what, without any real eternal purpose for living their Christian life, they're going to drift, and in the process they're going to be empty, confused, and lacking direction. And that's why I firmly believe that the reason so many Christians are miserable and unhappy and powerless is because not only are they living on the wrong side of the resurrection, listen up, they're living on the wrong side of the cross. I'm not saying they're not saved, okay? But remember, remember that Resurrection Sunday was the last in a series of events that started back a couple days, started about three or four days earlier than that. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Gethsemane preceded Calvary, and Calvary preceded Resurrection Sunday. What happened in Gethsemane? Jesus Christ, <clears throat> he surrendered his will completely to his Father. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. That allowed him to go to the cross the next day with the joy of knowing he was in his father's will. And of course, after he was crucified, laid in that tomb, and the stone was rolled in front of it, three days later, he stepped from that tomb alive, the very embodiment of resurrection life that he now shares with all of those who believe in his name. I'll tell you what, guys, there is no way we're ever going to live a resurrection life if we don't first die. Resurrection implies someone has to die, okay? And you will never die until you first surrender your life and your will completely to God and say, not my will, but your will be done. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. But let me just say this. Jesus never intended that we set aside one day a year to remember or celebrate the resurrection. He intended it to be an everyday way of life. You say, well, how do I enter into this resurrection life? Well, of course, you have to become a Christian. You have to give your life to Christ. That's the first step, obviously. But then you have to cultivate the mind of Christ. I'm convinced that so much of our Christianity um, is lived in our minds. What do I mean? Well, whatever has control of your, your thinking has control of your life. That's why the Bible says don't be conformed any, any more to this world's uh, way of thinking. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that starts by getting into God's word. It starts by looking at Jesus as our example. The one who came to the earth and said, um, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I have come for one purpose, that is to do my Father's will. I do always those things that please my Father. And then the one who said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. See, once we cultivate that mindset, the mind of Christ, then and only then will we be able to surrender our will to God and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We have to die, all right? We have to stop looking at church as a place that's going to bless me. Although we hope you are blessed when you come. That can't be your primary purpose for coming to church. This has got to be a place where the word of God is taught to convict your heart. To bring change into your lives. We want to be more like Jesus. We have to know his word. We have to all surrender to the power of the spirit. That he can start conforming us more and more into Christ's image. And once you die to self. And God breaks you and me of our selfishness because we all have selfishness right then you seek God to fill you with the spirit and when he does you begin to cry out in brokenness you know brokenness is you know everything you will never be concerned more for another until you're first broken of self love uh, that's just the way it is you know we all want revival right I don't know if any Christian doesn't want revival. Why do we want revival? Because it's exciting to see God working and changing lives, isn't it? Do you realize that every single revival that's ever taken place has always started with brokenness and weeping, not laughing and celebrating? And every revival that's ever started starts not with the masses, but with a person. It's an individual thing. Remember the story of the old revivalist, Gypsy Smith? who went all over the world preaching and uh, revivals taking place. And one day he was in a sp certain area and uh, a, a man came to him and said, uh, Mr. Smith, how can we experience revival in our town, in our church? He says, I'll tell you exactly how to do it. He said, you go home. You walk into your bedroom. You draw a circle on the floor. You kneel in that circle. And you pray fervently and sincerely, God, bring revival to this circle. And if enough of you do that, revival will break out throughout your community. But it starts with us individually. We have to be broken. We have to stop looking at our Christianity as a way to get things from God, as a way for God to make us happy, as if we're the focus all the time. We, somewhere along the line, the church has, has gotten away from being Christ-centered to becoming very man-centered. And in the process, we're losing the culture. We need the Spirit of God to break us and then burden us for the lost. If we're ever going to see anything happen in this nation for Christ. You know, it was said of John Knox, the great Scottish reformer and evangelist, he was so burdened to see the people of Scotland come to Christ that he knelt to pray one day and was overheard to cry aloud with, a great, with great agony of spirit, Great God, give me Scotland or I die. Lord, if you aren't going to use me to touch people for Christ, then will you just, I, just, I, I can't go on. 
I cannot bear to see people, the, the walking dead, every day going mindlessly about their business, knowing that what awaits them is a Christless eternity. One biographer said, that was truly the beginning of the transformation of that land. One man with that kind of a heart. In a very real way, the biographer said, before John Knox died, God had given him Scotland. You know what we need today? We need men and women of God who will cry out to him and say, oh God, give me America or I die. And that's interesting because you know what? Before you cry that out, you're going to have to die. Didn't Jesus say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies. It abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth what? Much fruit. You and I are that single grain of wheat. If we don't die, then God will not bring forth from our lives much fruit. We have to die. And before you're going to die, you first have to experience your own personal Gethsemane. Will you surrender your will to God and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Too many Christians pray exactly the opposite. God, not your will, my will be done. They don't even realize what they're doing. It's all about them. First comes surrender. And then comes death. Death of self. And then and only then can you experience resurrection life, which is life in the Spirit. Look, if you want to begin to live a life that really has purpose to it, then you've got to cultivate this mindset. Too many Christians are just drifting. And what a tragedy that is because God has called you to a ministry. He's, called, he's given you purpose. He's given you gifts to, to fulfill that purpose. God wants to use you. You say, how could he ever use me? Because he's gracious. Well, what does he want to use me? The eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth, looking for those whose hearts are loyal to him, that he might show himself strong through. It's never ability that God looks for. It's availability. He'll provide the ability. He'll give you the power. But you've got to be like Isaiah and say, Lord, here am I, send me. I don't got much to offer, Lord, but if you want to use me, I'm ready. I'm available. And that's what God says, absolutely. So may God give us grace this year to start living on the right side of the resurrection, walking in the truth of the resurrection, living in that power every single day. Because I guarantee you the time is short, the work is great, the laborers are few. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And I don't know about you, but there has never been a time in, this, in the history of the world where God wants to raise up an army to reach the lost. May we be willing to say, Lord, I want to be a part of that army. Use me. Use me. Father, we thank you so much that today really reminds us that, Lord Jesus, you died because you love us and because you wanted to save us. But once we give our lives to you, that's not where the story ends. That's where it begins. Now you want us to walk in resurrection life. You want us, Lord, to go into all the world and be a light and to preach the good news to every person. You want us, Lord, to continue the work that you began 2,000 years ago. 
And Lord, this world is rapidly passing away. The darkness is getting ever more intense. Give us grace to be lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And Lord, give us hearts for the lost like we've never known before. Hearts that will drive us to our knees in prayer. Hearts that will say, God, give me this nation or I die. I can't bear another day of seeing loved ones, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, living purposeless, Christless lives. I want to touch them, Lord, for you. Father, give us a burden for the lost. Make us a soul-winning church. Make us a house of prayer, which is, I think, how we become a soul-winning church. Bless our time of prayer next week. And Lord, may it be the springboard of a whole new way of living in this church where every one of us are living on the right side of the resurrection, living the life of the Spirit for your glory. For we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.